Welcome to One Chapel. We're a family of neighborhood churches in the Austin area. Our vision is to help people move from where they are to where God wants them to be. It's a place to connect, grow, and serve the communities where we live. You can learn more about One Chapel and how to get involved at onechapel.com. And now, here's this week's message. Good morning, y'all. Good to see you. Um, my, if you're visiting, my name is Cynthia Griffith. I'm one of the pastors here. We have a fabulous team of pastors at One Chapel, so I get to be one of them. And you may know me in that role already, uh, but some of you may not know me as a scientist. And my degree is actually in biochemistry. We have a lot of people in our family who have biochemistry or chemistry or biology degrees. So we're a little nerdy that way. Yes, I geek out on that, and I'm not ashamed. Um, (laughs) I love science. I love teaching science. I love geeky science shirts and jokes, and yeah, there you go. So, and my my perfect scenario equation for science is when scientific revelation meets Holy Spirit, and you get eternal revelation. I love that. And I loved actually teaching. I did get to do some teaching in some Christian schools, which was my favorite place to teach. Because when I taught in a non-Christian school and I couldn't talk about Jesus in the science, I couldn't stand it. And so I love teaching science in Christian schools because your eyes open up to who he is. Because everything he creates points to who he is. So anyway, um, why are we talking about science this morning? Well, you're going to find out. So pray with me. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to just come before you and learn of you. Thank you that you've given us minds to approach you with and hearts to approach you with. Would you come and prompt both right now, Holy Spirit, and instruct us in your scriptures and teach us about Jesus this morning. Amen. So I'm obviously a science fanatic, and I was just rereading a book given to me by someone special. Now, listen to this sentence. It was given to me by my priest in Las Vegas years ago. Now, who says that, right? (laughs) Whose priest from Las Vegas gives them a book they're reading 30 years later? Well, mine. And my um, priest, Charismatic Episcopal Church, by the way, not something you've probably ever heard of either. But you do what you do in Las Vegas. You find the church you need to go to. So anyways, he gave me a book by George Washington Carver, and it's called The Man Who Talks with Flowers. And George Washington Carver was born at the um, very end of the Civil War. He's born into slavery. His museum is actually in Austin. One of the museums is in Austin. Anyways, he became one of the most uh, prominent scientists of his generation. And he uh, created more than 300 different food and industrial products and commercial products that we still use today. Say over 300. That is a lot. And he created them um, from the peanut. Now, this is the peanut seems so normal to you now, but the peanut was not in Hughes um, production back then. And you can think 300 different products from peanuts and sweet potatoes, but one is what is the one product that he didn't create? Probably the peanut butter, the one that you think of first. He didn't do peanut butter. So, oh darn, right? Um, anyway. So um, the cash crop of the South was cotton, and it had depleted all of the resources of the land. So the same way that slavery had depleted the soul of a nation, cotton had depleted the soil. 
And here comes George Washington Carver with all of his scientific experimentation. And he develops all these products that then he then um, presents to the farmers. And they are determined, they discovered that they could have much more cash in his crops and rotate crops. So he has completely changes the economic landscape of the South and brings healing to the land by introducing crop rotation and providing finances and resource to the farmers. So he brings healing. Now, you think he must have been a really smart man, and he was. He was very highly intelligent. But the source of his revelation was not just his intelligence. It was the fact that he was a believer and filled with the Holy Spirit. And he would talk, go out into um, his laboratory or just into his fields. That was his favorite laboratory. It was just being out in nature. And he would talk to God about the creation, mostly flowers. That's why the book was called Man Talk, Who Talks of Flowers. But he would talk to God about his creation, the things that he had created. And the Lord had un unlocked for him all of these products and these ways to extract things from what was created, rearrange things chemically, and produce things, right? So he single-handedly changed a nation and international markets and brought healing and production based on scientific meets scriptural revelation. So you guys track with those two things? Okay, so because I'm talking to a bunch of educated people here, right? I know you. You are educated. Y'all have more little things at the end of your name than I do. So I want to talk to you, not about George Washington Carver, but about some ancient scientists, okay? We're in the Advent season, and I want to talk to you about some ancient scientists and who took scientific knowledge and spiritual revelation, knowledge of the scriptures, and they went on a journey of a lifetime. So you can imagine that we're talking about the Magi. And but before we really get into the scripture about the Magi, I want to talk about a few interesting facts about the Magi. First, they began their journey way before Christ's birth. So way before Christ's birth, they were studying. There's, they studied the stars. And it's um, just interesting fact to me. You can look up Rick Larson, who is a um, scientist from uh, Texas A&M, who used modern technology um, to basically... Uh, reverse the skies, you know, so, you know, you can use technology to see where the stars are at in the skies and their repeating process of motion over the years. And we know what, what the skies will look like a hundred years from now based on the repetitive nature of our solar system. Well, he's been able to reverse that and go backwards and look at what the skies were like 2000 years ago and make predictions, you know, okay, well then, so this is when what, what Judah represents in the constellations had Jupiter rise up right in the middle of it as a representing a star being born in Judea. So it shows when that happens. This is like real scientific information. So anyways, his name's Rick Larson. That's just a bunny rabbit free freebie for you. You can look him up. <laughs> anyway, so they started studying and started their journey years before Christ was born. But when they saw that star in Judea, they knew that a, a king has been born. And so then they began another journey and that would be the journey to find the king. So they knew that they were going to Judea from the constellations, and they were going to find the king. <clears throat> and their journey lasted a long time. And, and so they arrived months after Jesus' birth. So they weren't there at the birth. They arrived after his birth. And typically we talk about this after Christmas, but we're kind of going a little backing into Christmas and looking at the, uh, the wise men and then maybe the shepherds and 
We'll see where we go the next few weeks. You get the gist. But the other thing is, in all the pictures that you see, you see three wise men. That's on all our cards, on our anything you've seen electronically, any image, any Christmas card. Three wise men. Well, the Bible never says there were three. Did you know that? They're just wise men. You can look that up too. You can prove me. So there's a picture that you are familiar with. The three wise men. So they are wise men, and I want to read the story about them. So you can turn with me or look on your phone or follow on the screen to Matthew 2, starting in verse 1. We'll read through 1 through 12. So here we go. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. So the king heard this and was disturbed. And all Jerusalem with him. So they're hearing, who is this other king? Because King Herod is the king, not this other king. When he, call, when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers, that means the Pharisees and Sadducees of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said, in Bethlehem of Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. So the prophet said where he was going to be born. So, quote, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly to him and found out from them what the exact time the star had appeared. So Herod's gathering information. What city? When did that star appear? Secretly. He said, go, told the Magi, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. How many can sniff that one out right there, right? After they heard the, heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Well, can you imagine that, following a star and then you find the child? Would you not be overjoyed? It's like, wow. On coming into the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. That was their response. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You know the story. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, no surprise there, right? They returned to their country by another route. So who were the wise men? Let's look back at the first verse. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, magi from the east came to Jerusalem. So they were magi, and the word magi is important here because it's not they didn't use the word priest. They were, used the word magi, and from the east. So both of those point to the origin of the word magi, which is magos, and it is most likely Persian or modern-day Iran. That's where they use the term magi, and it meant wise men or teachers, priests, physicians, astronomers, seers, interpreters of, G- of dreams. That's what the word magos or magi is. So they were educated. They were educated, just like you. They were educated in science, in scripture. They were astronomers who knew the scripture. They were wealthy. So they were men of means. They had wealth. 
and they were driven. They were driven. Their beliefs caused them to act like you, they had to act on what they saw and what they knew and <laughs> wait for it. This was the original Star Trek voyage. <laughs> and some say it could have lasted two years. Isn't that funny? Star Trek voyage. And you know, they had no ways app. There was no like way to rerouting, rerouting. They, they had, they, they had to go on a long journey. And I want you to picture a long journey being Austin to El Paso on camel, right? That's, that'll help you understand Persia to Judea. And, you know, Austin to, to uh, El Paso is hard even when you have a car with AC, right? it's hard in a car. So imagine it on a camel. So they were driven if they were making this journey. So let's look at why did they come? Why did they come? So we'll have to look back at verse two next says Magi from the East came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we've come to worship him. So they were men of means And they were men of conviction. They're willing to give their possessions and their effort and their convenience to find a baby. And why? Not because they wanted to invest in the Messiah credit union and get a good return on what they were bringing. It's really obvious that wasn't what they were doing. They came to worship, right? They came to worship. Their offerings were a, a byproduct of a desire to worship this king and honor him. Matthew 6 says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. We think it says, where your heart is, you put your treasure. And that's kind of true. You know, my heart is in my children and I tend to, we tend to, you know, you know what this means? <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, you need, oh yeah, and you need the, oh yeah, and you're in college now. <laughs> you, but you give because you love them, right? But this scripture says, And this is what Jesus said, where your treasure is, your heart will also be. So your heart follows your treasure, not necessarily your treasure following your heart. Jesus says your heart follows your treasure. So it's very interesting. Here we are. It's Legacy Sunday, and we have just given our treasure, a big chunk of treasure to Jesus. And I'm expecting a big chunk of my heart to just be opened up to him in a new way, right? I'm expecting that for all of us. He loves a cheerful giver and he notices what we give to him. And it was true of the Magi as well. Seems they were willing to use any amount of treasure, time, effort, and sacrifice to chase what really matters most, which is worshiping the king. So heart follows treasure. Now I want you to peek with me into what worship looks like in heaven. So we're going to look at Revelation 5, verses 8 through 12. And so I want you to picture the fact that Jesus has been born. And by the time we get to Revelation, he has been born. He has grown up. He has preached. He has called forth the apostles. He has died on the cross. He was buried three days. He rose again, and then he ascended into heaven. And then John, who is left on earth and is now in his 80s, is having an encounter with God in the spirit. Divine imagination, an internal seeing eye, seeing what's happening in heaven. And the angel says, write it down. So it's written for us to read it. 
and to encounter it and to see what heaven is like and what worship is like. So let's start reading here at verse eight. Now, when he, meaning Jesus, had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a heart, a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which were the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. And this is the song they sang. You are worthy to take the scrolls and to open its seals for you were slain and you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and every tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests. We are kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard a voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Did you hear that? It's worth saying again. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. He's worthy and all of heaven knows it. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such that are in the seas and all that are in them heard them saying blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. Now, this has been going on in heaven. This worship still goes on even now. Do you know there's a concert about this that has gone on for 300 years? The Messiah, written by Handel, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, right? Another musician influenced by the Holy Spirit. The Messiah has written all about these scriptures, these prophecies. And then this scripture to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. And then the great amen. I got to hear it in Lakeway this week. And it's so different than a worship experience here on Sunday, right? You go to the Messiah and the Austin symphony is there. And these choir members, you don't know whether they know Jesus or not, but they're singing scripture and you just weep at the sound of many voices, singing many parts overlapping and overlapping. And you just know he is worthy. And this song has been sung for 300 years. Never stopped. So when you realize who the king really is, you do way more than something so small as giving him an an offering of treasure. You give him something far more valuable. You give him your worship and you give him your whole heart. And you make time to worship him. So they were driven by way more than some tradition of Christmas. They went to worship him. And I want you to look at what the prophet Jeremiah says that about those who seek him. Jeremiah um, 29, 11, 12. It's a familiar scripture to you. He says, for I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. He knows the thoughts that he thinks towards you. Thoughts of peace and not of evil 
to give you hope and a future, then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with your whole heart. Like when you search for him with your whole heart, you find him. You find him. You find him in a little town in Judea. You find him. And we get to find him still today. We still get to seek him and find him. And he promises he'll be found by us. So I want to go back to the science for a moment. And look at what they brought. So what did they bring? And uh, this is my favorite graphic. And that is, <laughs> they brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We don't always know what frankincense and myrrh look like, right? Well, I love this because it shows gold is an element. That's what those circles are. It's actually just an element. It's not combined with anything else. Those little dots are the free electrons in the outside of the, of the structure of the uh, gold element. And then you can see for frankincense and myrrh, there's multiple compounds there. It's because there's atoms that have bonded and connected with other atoms making a molecule and multiple molecules because they have different properties. And some of them make it smell really good when they're burned or when they're put with oil and anointed on someone. And so they actually have chemicals, structures, and physical properties that give them their value that we see. Isn't that cool? Work with me. This, I love this stuff. Okay, so I, let's look at gold specifically. Um, I have a picture of gold. Actually, this is ancient Persian gold. So this is what gold may have looked like brought from the Magi. So gold is atomic number 79. It's a transition metal. It has a beautiful luster. So it's shiny. It doesn't tarnish. It's malleable. So it means you can kind of form it into um, pieces of artwork. It has high value and is the basis of our world's monetary system. But God is, uh, gold is also used to describe God's word. So you can see a picture of gold, but gold is used to describe God's worth. And you can see that it's very highly valuable. But let's look at what Psalm 119 says. Psalm 119 verse 127 says, Truly, your message of truth means more to me than a vault filled with the purest gold. And then King David, one of the most famous kings, who is a man after God's own heart, wrote in Psalm 19, verse 10, the rarest treasures of life are found in his truth. And that's why I prize God's word like others prize the finest gold. Nothing brings the soul such sweetness as seeking his living words. Right? Buying the new stuff doesn't satisfy the soul. Right? But nothing brings the soul sweetness and satisfaction like seeking his living word. It's gold to us. And they also brought frankincense and myrrh. So frankincense and myrrh are made from um, two trees, the Botswana tree and the Camaphora tree. And they're made by cutting into the bark, allowing the sap to come out and dry. And then after it's dried, you scrape it. And that those pieces right there can be burned as incense. Or if they're steamed, the oils are extracted and the oils can be made for anointing. So um, now that's what they are physically, right? <clears throat> but I want you to look at what King David says um, that incense that is made is like. So we'll look in Psalm 141, and King David says, Let my prayer 
be as an evening sacrifice that burns like a fragrant incense, rising as my offering to you, as I lift my hands in surrendered worship. So our prayers are like that fragrance, that incense, that rises, that is sweet-smelling aroma. Our prayers, our language back to him where we speak and tell him who he is. King of kings, Lord of lords, ruler of the universe, the alpha, the omega, the, the soon and coming king. The government is on his shoulders. Like in worship, when we remind him of who he is, we kind of forget who we are in our circumstances. And some of us have really hard circumstances right now, don't we? And if you don't, you know somebody who does. And worship helps get our eyes off of our circumstance and onto the bright morning star. And helps line our hearts up on a path, on a journey to the bright morning star. And we realize who he is and the greatness of who he is and his power towards us who believe. And we get encouraged to face the circumstances that we're in. Because we have a very powerful, great, high God who moves on behalf of us. And is our comforter, our healer, our restorer, our provider. Right? We're in great need of our prayers to rise up like incense and lift our eyes to the morning star and have our lives lined up on the right path to meet him face to face. So frankincense and myrrh are our prayers. Now, I will tell you, they brought gold, they brought frankincense, and they brought myrrh. And there's a whole other message that we could look at about the fact that the gold actually provided what Mary and Joseph needed to take care of raising the baby king. Right, It actually provided, and it was also a gift fitting for a king because it was gold. And frankincense, the um, anointing oil of frankincense is used to anoint kings. It was also of high value and could be a, a source of provision for them in their journeys. And myrrh. Myrrh, do you know what uh, the anointing oil with myrrh is used for? It's used for burial. It's a picture of the place where this king was going. He had a journey that he was on. So that's another message. But let's look today. What can we learn from the wise men? And the most, there's two things I want to point out. One is my most profound gifts are personal, not transactional. The most profound gifts we give are personal, not transactional. Most of our interactions in the world are transactional. We give in order to get something. You get that. And giving is not an Amazon experience. It is not purchasing something over here and then having someone at some facility somewhere wrap it up, present it, and send it on an airplane and then, a, and then to a truck, to a delivery person to put it at your door. It's not a transaction that is impersonal. Real giving is from the heart and is eye to eye, right? That's real giving. Think about an engagement. An engagement always requires, or not always, but typically, requires something of cost, Right? And it doesn't, the cost of the gift doesn't mean that a person is valued at that same price, but it's costly as a sign. Like, it's costly. You are valuable. And so I'm giving this to you as a sign. Right? But an engagement is not about a ring, it's about an eyeball to eyeball commitment of love. It's about a lifelong commitment, right? That's what an engagement is. So real gifts are eye to eye. And he's interested in our hearts. And the motivation of our, uh, behind it is what makes our actions of value to him. He wants us to have personal and relational investment in others. 
And he really isn't interested in our stuff. He doesn't need our gold. But we need to give it. Like our hearts need to give it. He has plenty. But he wants for us to give our gold to him and to those in need so that our hearts will follow. And secondly, our most precious thing we can learn is that our gifts are given from our hearts, not our hands. You know, they come from our hearts. And our hearts must be changed. Luke 6, 45 says, um, says, a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And we have such a picture of the difference between the wise men giving good gifts out of the goodness of their heart. And they get to see Jesus face to face. And then we have Herod out of the evil is secretly contriving things in the background. And, you know, the the rest of the story goes on to say that Herod had every child, every male child under two in Bethlehem murdered. And thankfully, you know, an angel came and got Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus out. But that is evil. Evil. So what's in our hearts comes out in our actions. And what is our greatest gift that we can give, just like the Magi? What's the greatest gift we can give this season? What's the greatest gift we can give any season, right? Our faith. Like our faith in believing that he really is the son of God, that he really was born 2,000 years ago in a manger, and that it was his choice to be God made flesh in the earth, that it was his choice to be the lamb sacrificed for us. It was his choice to go to the cross and that he really was buried. He really died. He, and he, he really died. He really was buried. He really was in the grave and he really was res- resurrected and he really went into heaven and he is seated at the hand at the right hand of the father. And he is receiving that same amount of worship day and night right now, even now. And what do we get to give him? We give him our faith. He is who he is. And it's a costly journey of that faith. It costs us something. And we get to give him our worship. Your worship, which is way more valuable than your gold. It's seeking him with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. It's turning your gaze onto him. And I want you to um, look at what King Solomon says about that face-to-face interaction. So King Solomon wrote the Song of Songs, and the Song of Psalms is about a bride and a bridegroom. It's an allegory of us, the bride, and the bridegroom, Jesus. And you know, if, if women can be sons of God, then men can be the bride of Christ, right? Okay, so with that in mind, <laughs> we're going to read Song of, Song of Psalms 4, verses 9 through 10. And this is... Um, the bridegroom, so Jesus speaking, he says, you have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine and the fragrance of your perfume more than any spice. What your worship does moves his heart. One glance, one glance moves his heart. So you get to give him your faith and your worship and your love, all your love to Jesus first. 
Like our love isn't just toward the people we're giving presents to. It's to Jesus first. Like make time for it. Make time to be face to face with him. And then our love that we get to extend to others. And don't underestimate the value of your love in this season. Don't underestimate the value of a text and a moment and an eyeball to eyeball and a coffee. It's way more worth it to scrap that schedule and look at somebody and care about their needs. And take the time. Don't assume somebody else is doing it. People hurt more at this season than any other because they face the loss. What's not there. Every commercial reminds them that their family doesn't look like that. Right? My family doesn't look like that. So we need each other and we need to love each other well. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up and lead us in approaching Jesus in some worship together intentionally right now. Would you close your eyes? I just want to pray for us as they come up. Jesus, we love you. And we thank you for the gift of faith. Thank you that we can invite you into our hearts for the first time or for time after time after time and say, come and have your way. Have me, have all of me, have all my love. I ask, Lord, that you would help us to turn our gaze, Lord, where the culture presses in on every side. And that spirit of Herod that just wants to steal and plot against us to destroy. Lord, thank you that you give us your Holy Spirit that brings revelation. That you give us your word that's more powerful than gold. And you make a way in this season to find you when we seek after you with all our hearts. Lord, help us make the first things first. Loving you, God, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And loving our neighbor out of that. Oh, Jesus, we love you. Thanks for joining us today. If God is doing something in your life or you're looking for ways to get connected, you can learn about groups, teams, and more at onechapel.com slash welcome. You can subscribe to future messages from One Chapel on your favorite podcast player. And of course, you're always invited to services every Sunday morning at 930 and 1130. See you next time.